Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marks and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. Welcome everybody to the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is episode number 210. And my guest this time around is author and radio host Rex Hurst. Rex is the author of several books, including his forthcoming book, What Hell May Come, which is being published by Crystal Lake Publishing this June, so just in a couple of weeks. So how's it going, Rex? How you doing, man? Oh, it's doing good. Uh, again, I'm, uh, I live in South Carolina, so we're just starting to open it up here. And uh, I can finally leave the house again. <laughs> it's just so nice. Yeah, I, I found my first. I've literally before before you know I came home. I I got my first haircut that I've had in like two and a half months. <laughs> I actually wanted to ask you about that. So, uh, so over the last several uh, episodes of my podcast, um, it's it's sort of been impossible not to talk at least a little bit about uh, about coronavirus and COVID-19 and, and quarantines and sheltering in. So so you're in South Carolina, but w- what have the last couple of uh, last couple of months been like for you? Uh, well, the thing is I'm still going to work. I'm still I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm still teaching. Uh-huh. But I'm doing what they call I'm doing distance teaching. But I'm still going actually getting up going into school and doing it from there mostly because their Wi-Fi is way better than mine and no one's on. <laughs> Um, but wow, uh, it really shows you the people, the problem, the people who are taking my classes do not want to take online classes. So they're angry and they're <laughs> ready to come back into the classroom. I mean, that's what they prefer. Sure. And yeah, some people just cannot handle online stuff because they need a little bit more structure. That makes I mean, sense. You take, you take an online class, you have to be able to kick yourself in the ass to get moving. To get your work done, yeah, you have to have that sense. If you don't, you don't have that basic balance within your life to be able to be a self-starter. Um, then you need to go to uh, traditional classrooms. No, absolutely, yeah. In my in my uh, former life, I was a college professor for uh, about ten years, and and it, and it was it was all classroom with just a just a smidge of of online teaching. I did a little bit of online teaching for about uh, about a year or so. And, uh, and I hated it. I like, as a, as a, as, as a teacher, I hated it just because, um, the, it, it was, it was, it was much easier to be engaged in the classroom with a group of students to have right. conversations, to, to, to engage with them, both, both in terms of the, uh, the, the you know the, the the formal cadence of the classroom, but also just, um, just in terms of, of, of socializing and just sort of you know having a personal connection with the students where online it was it, it felt like you know even as a teacher there felt like there was very little structure and, and, and it was like um i honestly i don't I, I have very little memory of even how i did it or how it went i have not a clue if those students learned anything so so that's I, the biggest problem i can't tell if they're learning anything <laughs> i can't tell if they're doing it even doing their own work <laughs> that, yeah, right because yeah i mean you know for all you know i mean they they can log in i guess and then uh ultimately anybody could be d- doing their work or like is it is there is it uh is it sort of are there um is it like on zoom where you can see them is it uh is it, is it a lot yeah. of chat or what's going on with well, that we're using go to meeting because they said too many people can easily break into zoom oh yeah yeah go to meeting i'm familiar yeah, so we're using GoToMeeting. Uh, most of the st- and the other problem is the technical stuff. We have a lot of students that uh, are from a lower economic area who get grants, you know, to come to our school. Uh-huh. Um, and because we provide uh, the school I'm at provides extra structure for because mm-hmm. we get a lot of people that haven't been in the school for ten years and so forth. But that means they're not familiar with technology either, so they don't have, you know, a computer or a laptop at home. Some of them, right. some of them have to do everything over their phone now. Oh man. Oh yeah, and they don't have you know most of them aren't putting on their uh, what, what do you call it the aren't putting on their uh, their cameras or anything like that. Yeah, so, it, so it's a lot of disembodied voices talking. <laughs> so so on your end, are you um, 
So, so you're going to school. Uh, you're going. You're going to the physical school to do it. Are you? Yeah. Are you presenting like at the front of a classroom with a whiteboard and stuff, or, or what? No, your... no, no, no. I put everything online. Um, I'm not putting myself up there either uh, because uh, it just it, that's that's distance. I never, you know, that's old fashioned distance learning too. They've been pushing that since the '90s, uh-huh. where you have a camera and you have the, the professor. You know, it's just easier to put it up on a PowerPoint and let the students handle it. Yeah. by themselves um i think it's i think it's more coherent that way too yeah no that makes sense i, I think that definitely makes sense are you doing like uh i mean I, I, we're meeting we're meeting at this the time we would normally meet as if we we're going to be in the classroom uh-huh. and then i'm going through the material then and i'm dealing with the individual students okay so it's as close to an actual classroom experience as it can be without us actually meeting Okay, so let's so say you're doing the uh, like you know like like planned lectures. I, I I imagine. Yeah, which is just terrible. <laughs> well, I like you know. Okay, I teach mostly uh, comp, uh you know, uh, uh, of uh, remedial English. It's not remedial anymore. It's called developmental English now. Okay. And uh, you know, composition. So it's a skill. So it's a, you know, it, it's not content based. It's skill based. So I have students do a lot of work, and I usually have them a lot of do a lot of uh, individual. I mean, a lot of group work in class to help build on each other's skills. And I can't do that now. Yeah. So I throw more material at them because you know, I mean, writing's a skill like anything else. Mm-hmm. And the more you do it, the better you got it. What's that? Uh, what does it say? You have to do something for ten thousand hours to become an expert. <laughs> right. Exactly. So a lot of these people, they don't do it. They don't read. They don't. They don't write, or they haven't written anything besides a text message mm-hmm. in a long time. So I mean, I'm just trying to to build up their skill to at least uh, write in an academic manner. Yeah, and how, so like when I was teaching, like one of the things that uh, one of the most important parts of of, uh, of my teaching toolkit was engaging the class in in discussions, both, you know, small group discussions so they can sort of socialize with each other and they could exchange ideas in a less uh, intimidating fashion. Uh, and then we would have, you know, classroom discussions, which was a way of, um, uh, you know, introducing them to, 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 to the information and uh, uh, kind of holding their hands a little bit to, to help them get, you know, get the hang of it. Um, in an online uh, format with distance learning, are you, a- are you able to have discussions like that or, or, or what have you done? Uh, yeah, a couple of times I've broken up the, uh, we can do that to a certain degree, but a lot of students just aren't getting into it. Hmm. They're not, they're not participating any more than they really have to. And it's been pulling teeth. Yeah. So a couple of classrooms I've broken up said, okay, you come in here in this particular frame of time so I can deal with them one-on-one individually and everyone else gets a free pass. And then they come in at their prescriptive times. Mm-hmm. I find that just that one works the best. Okay, yeah, so it's like I can easily imagine that it's just a lot of at this point, just a lot of trial and error, just kind of figuring out kind of what works in this new format. It's like being, it's like the first year of uh, teaching all over again. (laughs) Oh, man, you just, uh, you just kind of sent a chill at my back thinking about that. (laughs) (laughs) Because when I was, uh, well, it's, uh, what uh, what uh, what age group roughly are, are you teaching? Uh, right at this point, we're teaching mostly um, uh, people in their thirties and forties who are going back and getting a uh, a degree for the first time or something okay. like that. Have been get, we have been getting some younger people too, but yeah. not a lot. So, um, at the very though they're they're more dedicated at that age, but they're also their skills have deteriorated significantly. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I, I could, I, I, I recognize that, uh, that experience very much when I was a college professor, but like my first, uh, my first year teaching, I really like my first semester teaching, um, I was just uh, overwhelmed by the idea of, I, I, I had not a clue of what I was doing, and right. when they when they hired me, I just I, I, I assumed, um naively i assume that there's going to be some sort of like orientation or training or, like, <laughs> <laughs> or something and it was just literally like you know uh, here's here's the textbook we like here's a keys to your room class starts this day good luck yeah and i and i kept waiting for the next part of like you know and we'll give you an idea of how to do this next week and that never came so, so then 
just just that I just I felt just great sympathy for my students that whole time thinking like I don't know I, I I don't know if I'm helping I might be making you dumber I have no idea and I just uh, in fact that'll be my <laughs> that was my goal just don't make them dumber and and you can feel okay about uh, about the about the job you're doing and then but but over over time over the years figuring out what would seem to work figuring out what the students seem to like figuring out you know uh, just just the best way to do it so then to imagine now having this new uh this <laughs> this new environment to have to figure it out again that's that wants to be in. that's the other thing no one wants to do this i mean no one wants no one involved in this new environment wants to be in that new environment man that makes it all the more difficult yeah god damn it yeah yeah i hear you uh, how uh, do you teach year round? Do you uh, are you off in the summers? What's your schedule? Uh, yeah, we have a quadmaster system, so we teach for um, eleven weeks, and then we get like a week off. Okay, uh, are are you? Uh, when when's your next week off? Oh, uh, sometime in June. Okay, well that's Towards good the, news. Yeah, so hopefully everything will be opened up by then. Yeah, get a little break uh, from from them. Maybe get out and. Uh, uh, that's the other thing with the with you know just the economies and businesses opening up. Um, then yeah, then that'll be you know interesting too. But even if even if it's just uh, you know going to sitting outside at a restaurant just to right. feel you know normal for thirty minutes or so. Right. Well, you know, we still got the social distancing thing, but uh, and I think that's going to be you know all these lockdowns. Now they're saying that they didn't do as much good as they thought they were going to do, and reading all the stuff on there. Right. But I, what the well, the, the social distancing thing is what's going to cause it to go away, not the lockdowns at this point. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell. Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, like I, I read as much about it as I can, but then ultimately come away with, man, I don't know. I just. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, like uh, sometimes I read an article that's very uh, uh, optimistic, and I think, oh, fantastic! And then I'll read another article that's like, shit's going down, man. It's like, god damn it, I don't know. Depends on what part of the world. The thing is, I think the more sanitary we are, and we are ridiculously sanitary now, mm-hmm. uh, I think that'll that'll do it. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, every time we I go in and out of school, I have to you know scrub basically almost scrub myself down with uh, whatever that stuff is. <laughs> antibacteriological whatever soap and i mean everyone's using it. i mean the reason it's there's pumping it out like crazy but it's getting bought up like crazy and that's probably a good thing that's what's <laughs> going to cause it to go away yeah 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 man so yeah, so you're in, you're in uh, south carolina is that where you grew up or where did you grow up i'm originally from buffalo new york okay Home, and that's where the book takes place is in buffalo new york so a lot of it is um uh, semi-autobiographical Oh no! No, that's interesting. Okay, so 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 the book itself, and uh, and and of course, and you know, I'm going to have you tell me more about it. But the book itself, uh, it it's uh, it's ultimately deals with uh, like the the you know, uh, satanic cults in the 1980s. Right. Well, if you remember, what are you from Canada? I'm not. No, I'm actually uh, I grew up in Southern California. Okay, well, I could have sworn I heard a Canadian accent under there. Okay, <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why. Okay, uh, well then, you know, uh, well, you were you were around in nineteen eighties too, right? Yes, sir. They had that huge. Uh, remember, they had that huge panic there about all those daycare wor- workers, uh, sex uh, that, that they thought were sexually assaulting, um, you know, children. Yeah, that and, sounds very familiar. And they were inaugurating them into a satanic cult. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, that's part of the satanic panic. That's when things really turned dark. Um, as it turns out, all the people, there were like 30 people locked up in those things. It was almost, it was basically a witch hunt. Wow. And as it turns out, every one of those convictions was eventually overturned, except for one, when it turns out the guy actually was a pedophile. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, but he wasn't involved in any satanic conspiracy. Now, if you remember back, it started in the 70s, went into the 80s, and that's why, and I remember it specifically from the 80s, it was, there was this idea that there were this satanic, underground satanic cults all over the place, secretly manipulating pop culture to um, corrupt the youth of America, to corrupt the morals of America, Hmm. and they've been around since the 1960s forever. 
And then all these books started being published. Uh, this one that I really set off the thing was Michelle Remembers, where this woman, Michelle, and this is supposed to be a true story, she was uh, put under hypnosis by her, by her psychiatrist, mm -hmm. and she began to, to remember um, instances of satanic ritual abuse from when she was a child that she had suppressed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a big thing in the 80s, too, if you remember. All of a sudden, all these people popped up with it. Well, as it turns out, if you, if it, it turns out it's complete nonsense, of course. Because <laughs> if you, the book, it doesn't say that she was abused by this satanic cult as a child. She claims that they were involved in an 81 day festival called the Feast of the Beast, in which they literally summoned up the devil. <laughs> oh, geez. Who spoke to them in rhyming couplets? I mean, it's all in the book. <laughs> I don't see how anyone took that seriously. But yeah, Geraldo ran around with it, and all these people were all of a sudden saying, "Oh, I was abused as a child, and my father's a Satanist." And as it turns out, none of it, none of it's true. But it started a huge wave, and I'll forget the '80s was also. It started. It began in the '70s, and it was more underground then. But then the '80s hit with the televangelists. Mm -hmm. And they really started to push it because it's perfect for them, right? Yeah, yeah. They have a they have a built-in antagonist, and th that's not real. <laughs> they can't push back. <laughs> right? so they, you know, I mean, they they were claiming that if you played, you know, uh, heavy metal music backwards, you could hear satanic messages, mm -hmm. and and stuff like that. You know, and I mean. You listen to the 80s heavy metal. I mean, I suppose it was wild and crazy then. Nowadays, it's actually kind of tame, a lot of it. <laughs> right? I mean, Unskinny Bop by, uh, who was that? Molly Crew? Oh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Well, they claimed that was satanic messages in there. Oh, my, they, they, that Molly Crew was satanic? No, that's hilarious. Oh, Molly Crew, <laughs> uh, Metallica, all those guys. They were all as secret Satanists putting messages in their music. <laughs> yeah, well, and then um, the the big one that also got battered was Dungeons and Dragons and all the role playing games. They always claim they always state Dungeons and Dragons in these books. So I collect I collect all these Satanic Panic books, like rare jewels. I mean, they're just so much fun to read. You know, what's funny is I only just recently uh, was reading a little bit about uh, you know Dungeons and Dragons being seen as like. Uh, uh, as as being you know dangerous or or satanic in, in the eighties and and uh, and I actually had I had no no memory of that that actually kind of caught me by surprise because my only my only memories of uh, of Dungeons and Dragons was was it was just kind of kind of you know it, it was part of uh, nerd culture even though that that wasn't a thing per se in the eighties but that's my only thought of it I had no idea but 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 then again I also but but I do know that you know in the last you know ten fifteen years. Um, uh, amongst other pieces of pop culture, uh, Harry Potter has has been sort of deemed satanic by by particular, you know, uh, you know fundamentalist uh, groups. Yeah, yeah. So those weren't ever taken seriously. Don't forget, this was uh, this stuff was being reported on on like you know ABC News. Oh, Is man. it satanic? I mean, they were asking these questions seriously. <laughs> and then a lot of people, of course, transposed it. You know, not is it as a part of a satanic cult? Yeah. It is part of a satanic cult. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons is interesting because it all boils down to one particular case mm -hmm. of um, I got his name right here, uh, James Dallas Egbert the Third, and he was uh, he was uh, it, he was in college uh, and he got uh, he was the guy that got lost in the steam tunnels under the uh, co what college is this? Sorry, I have this, uh, I think it's Wisconsin. Uh, no, Michigan State University. Hmm. Okay. Now, this kid had drug problems. He was gay and had difficulty. And this is back in the, you know 1979 when it was not okay to be gay. And he was dealing with mental problems due to the stress of that. Mm -hmm. And he liked to play Dungeons and Dragons. Well, this guy snapped and disappeared. And he was found in a sort of weird fugue state in New York City six months later, living on the streets. Well... All of a sudden, <laughs> what are they? It's it's like Columbine when they blame Marilyn Manson. Right. What happened there? They blamed it all that he the fact that he that he played Dungeons and Dragons. 
not the drug <laughs> abuse, not the mental issues, right? Not the stress of having to hide his sexuality. Mm-hmm. No, it's Dungeons and Dragons. And then that was eventually turned into a novel, um, a popular novel at the time called Mazes and Monsters by Rona Jaffe, um, who I, I include that as part of the satanic panic literature, mm-hmm. but it doesn't claim the Dungeons and Dragons is satanic at all. It, it, it basically is a, re, is a fictional retelling of the uh, James Egbert case. And then that Mazes and Monsters was turned into a TV movie which starred a very young Tom Hanks. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you can catch it on YouTube. It's bad. I mean, it's over. <laughs> he goes nuts. He believes he is his character, and he ends up killing a guy. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> so, well, then, uh, so, then they start to incorporate that as part of the satanic literature. Um, and then a group popped up. Sorry, let me just say no, this. No, go for it, man. By Pat Pulling, who uh, founded Bad, which was called Bothered About Dungeons and & Dragons. And her son was also a drug addict with mental issues, who liked to play Dungeons and Dragons and committed suicide. Hmm. And she blamed Dungeons and Dragons for that. And she wrote this wonderful book. I just love it. It's called The Devil's Web. Who is stalking your children for Satan? <laughs> oh, my God. It, it's just... it's just. <laughs> so, for my book, I looked upon this stuff, and I had to do something with it. Yeah. And I realized, you know, I said, what would the world actually look like if all of this was true? So I took all these conspiracy... Um, uh, all these conspiracy theories put on these books and I put it together and that's what this book is about. It's what if the satanic, satanic panic was true. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Well, so, 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 so that setup for the book is, is fantastic. Uh, well, what about, uh, who, who's, who's the main character? Who's our protagonist that takes us through this world? All right. His name is John St. Fund. And he was about my age, as he was in 19... It takes place in 1986. Um, I, hopefully, I didn't load it up with too many 80-isms. That's <laughs> part of when you deal with... Uh, you know, when you're writing in a history period you actually lived through, yeah. you want to make sure people understand that, so you make it uber that. <laughs> right. The 80s, everything is uber 80s, right? Nothing left over from the 70s or the 60s. Everything is uber 80s or uber 70s. Um, so it's John St. Fond, and he is abused by his parents. And he then he begins to, and he's got two other siblings too, and he begins to realize that his parents are part of a satanic cult, or a cult of some kind. Mm-hmm. I, don't do, I don't go out of my way to say Satanism, but you know, sure. they're part of a cult. Because he stumbles upon all these cameras, and he realizes uh, that every room in the house is being... Um, watched 24 hours a day. <laughs> so then as he digs, he goes further and further into the past to try to find out. And then he also plays Dungeons and Dragons as an escape. It's the only escape he has from his life. Mm-hmm. And then he begins to learn the truth about that. Well, not the truth about that, but I make it another game called Dark Dungeons. <laughs> okay. Dark Dungeons. <laughs> Was uh, uh, did you ever read any of those old chick tracks? No, no, I didn't. Oh, uh, they are um, they're little rectangular cartoons. I mean, comic strips mm-hmm. put out by this uh, by Jack Chick, who was a fundamentalist Christian, and they would teach each one would teach a different lesson. I mean, and, and, and when I say fundamentalist, I mean paranoid fundamentalist. <laughs> if you weren't part of his specific denomination of Christianity, you were going to hell. <laughs> okay. Oh, or busts, right, right, and part of the and he began to he really weaved all these satanic conspiracy stuff together, and uh, he put out these little comic strips, and they were printed at cost. You can buy a few of them online. One of them was called Dark Dungeons, talking about Dungeons and Dragons, and it's the evil nature of it that it would teach you real magic, and that you would cast on your parents, and you will eventually be dragged to hell. <laughs> Yeah, that's my prize one. I mean, I collect, I collect a lot of those, but that's my particular favorite one. Oh man, that's too funny. So okay, you didn't hear any of this when you were growing up. I'm telling. So okay, so I I, I grew up I, I grew up in the 80s. I was born in born in 77. So I was, but I was definitely uh, a cognitive in the 80s. 
Um, my my in terms of the satanic stuff, my most vivid memories are of uh, of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, right? <clears throat> uh, primarily because you know I because where I grew up in Southern That's California, the, you know, the, I was. You know, he, you know, his his murders were taking place in Southern California, and and so I remember as a kid that it seemed like every day, you know, I'm sure it wasn't every day, but it felt like every day there was another murder, and it seemed like every murder was one city closer to where I lived, where his uh, his last murder before he was uh, basically before he was you know beat down and apprehended by by uh, by a group of. Um, citizens basically who who recognized him and you know beat the shit out of him you know that that happened you know you know 20 minutes from you know from where i grew up so so i have like very 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 vivid memories of being you know terrified of of, of the night stalker being aware that he was out in the world i in fact, as a kid i don't i don't think i realized as a kid that uh that he had any sort of uh connections or, or, or beliefs in a in um in a you know satanic uh you know uh, whatnot but but you know I, I have very clear memories of you know hearing stories from you know like teenagers and stuff of like oh you know uh it, you know if if you know if you're taller than you know taller than this you know, he'll leave you alone uh but 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 you know or if you're shorter than this then then you won't you know, he won't kill you but if you're taller than this then you know then then, then you're not safe and when you know, whatever they're telling me i was always just short of the range of like i was still in danger or whatever but even just like playing in the backyard uh, I can remember feeling like, you know, like, am I, am, am I safe? Is, is he going to come around the corner? Um, and even it, it, was, it was the first time I'd even heard the the, the term serial killer. I, I'd never heard that before. And so my yeah, mo- it really in a vogue in the late 80s. Yeah. And, it, and so my mom, you know, because, you know, she was sweet and I was a kid and she and she knew I was dumb. She said, you know, it's OK. What we're going to do is we're going to put, you know, every night we'll put a box of cereal on the porch and then we'll be okay because that's all he wants. And, <laughs> and, oh, and I'll tell you what, I slept so good because I was like, oh, th- th- he's a st- oh, that's all he wants. Okay, that makes that makes perfect sense. And then, um, but then, you know, growing up and eventually, you know, I- I'm sure that had something to do with my eventual fascination in the horror genre and then eventually writing a, a horror novel myself so but but that said that that's a long-winded answer of saying that somehow that the large the, the the idea of the 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 satanic panic and the satanic cold that i i don't want to say that i wasn't aware of it but i don't think i was aware of it to the degree that uh that that, that your book um deals with it uh, i know somehow it seems to have happened more in my area or it was a bigger thing because mm-hmm. there, there are a number of deaths um in the book but they're all based on actual deaths that occurred that was considered to be part of a, a, a culty or a satanic uh, in nature at the time. Or that uh, one guy kills his family, and they blamed it again. They, again, they blamed it on the fact that he played D&D and was part of this group at, a, at, a, at an area called Snakeland, um, which was, you know, um, Snakeland kind of exists. It was a patch of dirt near an old uh, grain silo. Uh-huh. And the kids used to go there, and they get stoned, and they get drunk, and they and uh, they read from the Satanic Bible because at the time you could buy a copy of the Satanic Bible or Anton Lavey from Walden Books. <laughs> you could go there, spend three bucks, get a copy of it, and they were selling it, you know, on the open. It wasn't a big deal. I mean, you can't do it; you won't find it anywhere now. I mean, even places where bookstores still exist. But uh, at the time, yeah, it was uh, it was considered new age spirituality. But you know, you got a bunch of dumb kids who want to feel rebellious, so they're reading from the reading the, the the rituals from it, and that's all that was. Eventually, they grew out of it, right? You know, they kept the pot, <laughs> they kept the drink, they kept the look. So, uh, so in terms of writing, so so like uh, I, in my own experience, you know, when you know, whenever I'm working on a on a book, because I as I currently am, it, it it tends to be a combination of um, I like to do a lot of research, especially if if I'm writing about something that either I don't know a lot about or something that I'm familiar with, but I want to like really deep dive in and really get it right. So so I'll do a lot of research and collect a lot of information, but then I also want to ba- you know, I'm also conscious of balancing that against um, not not just you know just throw in a bunch of information in, into you know on, onto the page like I still want to have a structure to it I, I still want to have you know I, 
you know, my, yeah. my my story structure, my characters, my my setting, my my beginning, middle, and end, uh, while also you know uh, weaving in all this all this great information, and you know, sometimes it's a balance of you know all the you know it, you know this this section of information is so great. Um, does this, but does, you know, can I fit all of this in here? Uh, am I shoehorning it in? Does it have a place in the book? Um, so, so I would love to hear about, you know, your experience writing the book in terms of like, you clearly have a, a very robust, uh, interest and fascination in this. So how did you balance that with also, you know, uh, tending to just, just being a good writer and storyteller? Well, part of it is, um, I took events that actually happened. Now don't forget all of this stuff is listed as, Nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So my so that's all out in the public domain. So I took a lot of that stuff and I incorporated it into the book. So the elements that are occurring in these are occurring in the story, my story as well. Okay. Now the you know now how do you get around an information dump? <laughs> that's difficult. And I actually had a couple of times, a couple of paragraphs were pulled out of the book by my editors because when I'm trying to explain how things were in the '80s, right? Uh huh. The mention of AIDS in there, right? And I said, well, you know, back in the '80s, AIDS was still, you know, considered the gay disease, mm-hmm. it's a shameful thing. And they said, and then, you know, I said, blah blah blah, and I gave a little bit, a paragraph, a pure exposition on it, right? And then pull this out, get rid of it. It's, <laughs> it's not easy. I know it, it, it is not easy. Um, that's why you need a good editor to look at it. Um, information dump. I don't think. Is it necessary to give a fuller picture? Yes, but it's uh, a lot of times you find it's best. I find it's best if you have a character say it, like one character talking to another, mm-hmm. discussing it, or maybe some of the background stuff. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Dialogue, especially with the uh, you know uh, that, that's that's just that's that's just a good tip for anybody listening who. Uh, is either uh, an aspiring writer or a developing writer. Dialogue is is, is a terrific shorthand to to get information, uh, you know, uh, into the book, you know, to the reader without without it feeling uh, intrusive or like an information dump. That uh, you know, like any good dialogue, if it's it, it should either uh, you know uh, move the story forward or, or present some information the reader needs or or, or teach us something about the characters but that that is a great way of like you know uh you know like if if i just read this this really great article with a lot of great information and uh and i can't use all of it but maybe uh maybe my characters can talk about it for a few lines and at least get get some of that in there right because you're not going to use all of it ever yeah ever um but the other thing is you have to make sure that when that dialogue is used that the other character would generally not be aware of that information correct yeah you know, it's what they it's what they call exposition. You know, mm-hmm. so John, how have you been been enjoying being friends with me for the last five years? And I mean, you want to get away from <laughs> stuff like that, right? I mean, right? Uh, you know, uh, because that that's completely unnatural. Yeah. So you want so that's why it's always that's why the uh, the character of uh, the hero's journey or the fish out of water character, the person placed in a position where they're never been before or wouldn't know any information, is so useful especially when you're creating a new world mm-hmm. you know like well you're not just horror but you know science fiction and fantasy um if everyone would have uh, to uh, have assumed if everyone in that culture would assume to know the stories of that culture there's almost no reason for them to discuss it unless say that character was a child and you have an adult teaching the child the history mm-hmm has to be a specific reason why they're talking about that and that one character would not know that information. Otherwise, you just, you know, it, it gets really awkward. It sounds awkward. Yeah. And, and the other benefit of it, too, uh, is that it it helps the reader. Uh, it, basically, the reader can, the, the reader is already in that person's shoes because the reader doesn't know anything either. So, so the reader gets to learn information at the same time as the character, and it creates a, it creates a nice uh, a connection for the reader that that they might be aware of, but it might also just be very uh, a sort of an up, a, a, a subconscious or unconscious connection they're making to to the character and the story, and it helps uh, engage them that much more. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but it's a, a again, it's a fine balance. 
And like such as this, my main character, you know, the main characters learn uh, of my book of, of what hell may comes is learning about this uh, satanic thing in this uh, sort of alternate universe. So often, very often, the main character is a cipher for the reader. They're their eyes and ears, and you know, it goes back and forth because sometimes it's useful. Like say with Lovecraft did horror, right? His character, his main character is, apart from being scared all the time, you knew nothing about him. They could be literally, they were literally like holes in the universe that you're peering through. <laughs> uh-huh. um, King changed that up a lot with his horror because his horror is a lot more personal. The main characters, you got to know them. They were real people, uh-huh. not just fonts. And that that's a big deal right there. But even then, you know, I mean, you know, when you're writing horror, the main character almost is never that important. So you have to, uh, because, you know, People want to know the monster, right? Right, right. absolutely. I mean, how many Stephen King characters are writers? <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. I mean, how many can you name? But I bet you name all the villains. Uh-huh. Um, so if you can, so, so the best way to do it, I think, is to try to get to, try to get to a person to feel for that character, is to put them in a horrible position where they're, especially uh, an abused child. I mean, that's why everyone fell for Carrie when he wrote Carrie. I mean, that was his that was his breakthrough hit. Mm-hmm. Or Harry Potter, right? You feel sorry for Harry Potter because he's being abused in a situation that is beyond his control. Mm-hmm. And I feel that's always a good way to start. Strange <laughs> <laughs> as that sounds. Um, with the main character being, uh, you know, a younger person in a position that they want to get out of but are unable to. And they are the underdog. And then you begin to reveal the rest of the world. I mean, you want to get the main character to be on, uh, you want to get the readers to be on your main character side as quickly as possible. Or at least have an interest in what that person is doing. Mm-hmm. Now, on your on your radio show, and I'm thinking about your radio show specifically because um, uh, you guys talk about uh, writing and you have in-depth conversations about writing like this so the radio show is called right on se uh uh how how did you get involved with it and and ultimately you know you know what what are what what sort of conversations have you guys had with with regards to writing well uh again uh well i got involved i'm I'm part of the uh, south carolina writers association and my co-host um actually uh started up the idea of the radio show she started up by herself and then she had me on a few times because we're part of the same chapter. Um, and I offer a different perspective because a lot of the people down here, all they're doing is writing historical, southern historical fiction uh-huh. or cozy mysteries. <laughs> and, and I come in with my horror novels, you know. <laughs> oh, the satanic, you know, we cut her belly open and blah, blah, you know, well, not exactly that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it just, um, it, it offered a completely different perspective um and we actually got a grant from the state of south carolina to uh produce our our, our thing because there's a, a an, an artist grant that's awesome yeah i mean we don't get paid for the radio show you know how it is sure because uh, especially nowadays i mean you forget there are radio the radios are out there <laughs> uh, where do you guys record uh we record um there's a there's a there's a little studio downtown uh, in Columbia that uh, has four different radio stations operating out of it. So we just go in there, you know, sit down. And <laughs> has that cha- actually come to think of it? Has that changed during the uh, during the pandemic? No, not at all. I thought it would. Oh, that's cool. That's good. Yeah. And is it? Uh, I imagine. Uh, what is it? Is it the two of you? Do you guys have a producer or anything? No, 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 no. no. We learned how to do it all ourselves. You know they're not making a lot of money off of us, and but we're not getting paid either, so it's not really costing them anything. Okay. So you know we try to get in as many writers as we can, but there's this, again, this is this is South Carolina. There's just not that many writers around. <laughs> readers. For real, yeah, yeah. In fact, when I um, a couple of years ago, so when I first started this podcast in uh, 2014, I believe is when I started it. Um, at at the time. Uh, my first several episodes I was doing, you know, all face-to-face live guests. And I was basically, you know, just like, just exhausting every, anybody I knew I, I was calling in favors to, to, to bring them in and talk to them. 
but I was, but you know, every time I brought in a new guest, I, I was, I was, I was, I, I was thinking to myself, I'm running out of people I know who are either writers or editors or have anything to do with this. And at some point, I don't know who I'm going to talk to, or if I'm just going to have to go back <laughs> to the beginning and talk to that same person again. Yeah, we went through it pretty quick. Uh, so then we we focused mostly on different aspects of writing. Um, we we spent like you know five weeks talking about the hero's journey. Right. Uh, today we actually are we uh, we just finished. We did uh, before this one. We did an episode on dialogue and the best ways to do dialogue in different ways and you know um, exposition and character uh, how to build up characters. So we we focus more nowadays on different techniques of writing. That's fantastic. And so even though the radio show is local. Uh, uh, anybody can listen to it on your website. That's correct, right? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, which is actually how I, how I ended up learning about it myself is uh, is on your website. So, um, so that's cool. So, so you've got the radio show, um, but also with the book, which again is coming out in June of June of this year. What hell may come? So it's published by Crystal Lake Publishing, and uh, and Crystal Lake Publishing, you know they. They're fantastic. They work with a lot of great authors. They put out a, a lot of great books. Uh, and I'm always curious because uh, I've talked to several authors who've published with Crystal Lake Publishing. And, and it seems like uh, every story is a little bit different as to how that author came to work with Crystal Lake Publishing. So in your case, how did you come to work with Crystal Lake Publishing? And, uh, and uh, how did they come to end up um, acquiring your book? Well, literally, they just... Um, um Literally, they just, I saw a tweet from them saying that we are open to submissions starting, you know, like this was about, uh, uh, probably about a year and a half ago. Okay. So, and I just, I just, you know how it is when you're doing a submission uh, text or uh, email? Mm -hmm. Sit there and I go, I probably spent more time editing that than I did the book. (laughs) That's true. You want a bit to be perfect and you're afraid any little flaw is going to be, just going to be, you're just going to throw it away. Mm Mm-hmm. Any little mistake, so I went through that, and I just, I just submitted it, and uh, you know, I've gotten so many rejections that I was surprised when I got it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, you know, my earlier books. Now I look back at my some of my earlier books. I'm, they deserve to be rejected. I, I think I'm <laughs> finally getting to a point where I'm writing solid material that people can, you know, I mean, again, it's a skill, and writing an entire book is a skill. Yeah, and. Um, it's it's so much different from short stories, and you got to sustain it, and you got to make sure it doesn't drag in the middle. Mm-hmm. And you, you really, I mean, I've heard that uh, you know, you're probably not going to do well with a book until you finish your third one, and that's when you're going to start hitting your stride. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I've I've heard similar. In fact, when I was, um, you mentioned short stories when I was, you know, like in college and and learning, uh, developing as as a writer, taking writing classes, doing my very best just to get some idea of, of, of how to do this craft. Uh, I can remember, you know, having, even, even if I had what felt like a great idea for a story, um, I would struggle to get 10, 15 pages out of it. If, if I could squeeze 15 pages out of, out of a good idea, I really felt like, like I, if, if to me, it felt like one of those, you know, 800 page Stephen King tomes. So, but, but then I would think to myself, you know, my goal is to eventually be a novelist and I can barely get 10, 15 pages out of a, out of a, what feels like, like, like a good idea. I couldn't even imagine how in the world do you, do you spin an idea into, into 300 well, pages? You can't ever judge yourself by Stephen King. All right. No <laughs> one writes like him. <laughs> right. No one does. No one can spew it out. It's like it's like an artist comparing themselves to the amount of work put out by Jack Kirby. You just can't do it. Yeah, the standard that's almost impossible. Um, and 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 let's face it. I mean, a lot of his stuff. He he can spend a lot of time talking about stuff. Um, that that when you actually see it, like on the screen, is a very short amount of time. So he's a good way of 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 going to. A, he's got a lot of exposition. Yeah. A lot of material. I don't think he had wrote a background note that he didn't publish it. He put it in a book somewhere. <laughs> um, and no matter how much time he does, I think I, you know. I I often think, and I you know, I like his stuff, and I, it's very inspirational. But I think a lot of his stuff works better as movies and TV shows than they do as books. Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. 
Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, Carrie, the the novel and the movie are, are on par, but then Misery, Misery is a way better novel than it. I mean, way better movie than it is of novel. Um, just well, maybe just because of Kathy Bates. <laughs> Plus that whole scene with the, you know, in the novel, you know, you got that whole hobbling scene. Oh, God, yeah. Uh-huh. And then, you know, even he admits that's better because in the novel, he, she chops off his leg with a chainsaw. Oh. The, yeah. It, but the hobbling, God almighty. I guess I didn't, I guess I realized now, I guess I didn't read the book. But yeah, I, I mean, and that, that, that movie at this point is, if it's not 30 years old, it's close to it. And I still can't watch that scene without... Uh, yeah. <laughs> my, my first instinct is to look away even if it's just you know like just just like a montage of scenes from different movies just the second that comes up i i, I get a chill right well that, i mean that's just how much uh but you know and then you get again you realize that misery is like a 500 450 uh, to 500 page book mm-hmm. but all of the major points are boiled down to an hour and a half in the movie mm-hmm so, I mean, if you want to, you can make an 800-page book, but you're going to have to put in a lot of extraneous detail. I mean, Salem's Lot. Did you ever read that? Uh, I, I that that's one. Of the, I, I tried to read it. Um, I just uh, my my memory of trying to read Salem's Lot is I I kept waiting for the vampires and I got bored and I I stopped I think about halfway through so I never finished that's it. Pages. That's an 800-page book, but most of it's the what what's going on into in the story itself. In the um, in the towns, the the interaction of the townspeople, it's a very slow buildup, mm-hmm. um, and you know he can get away with it because he's Stephen King. Yeah, but I don't think anyone else nowadays, you know, can get away with it just the way he can. Yeah, no, not at all. Especially, right. especially in terms of um, so like so like you know you talk about um, you know writing uh, your submission letter for for Crystal Lake Publishing. Um, just you know, whether whether you're looking for a publisher or or an agent or something like that, one of the first things, uh, cer- certainly that I became aware of or, or, or learned or, or or you know or just or just you know assumed, but but it was you know if you know, if you're submitting both the letter and even even if you're sending just sample pages, even if you're sending here's the first you know, here's the first five pages of my novel, uh, the idea was always, man, that that first page, that first paragraph, that first sentence. Uh, got to knock them on their ass. Or if it doesn't, maybe they're not going to turn to page two. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on that, but I don't, I don't think my first great sentence, my first, the first sentence was really great. <laughs> uh, they, they say that, but it's ridiculous. There are certain yeah. things that you should not do. Mm-hmm. Um, don't start you because it's become a massive cliche. And all, the, the agents and the other people I've talked to said they'll turn it away immediately. Don't start your book with your character waking up. <laughs> all right or the alarm goes off and they're jolted into reality don't start that uh-huh. and don't start with your character on a plane going somewhere <laughs> so it's been done to death right uh-huh um so uh they say it's got to knock you out it all depends on the person's mood uh i i think um i i think it's overblown i don't yeah. think you can tell if a person's interested, they're interested by the pitch. They'll be more interested by the pitch yeah. in there. That, that paragraph describing what the book's about and what's going on. And you have to give the full detail of what's, gonna, what's happening in there. Yeah. Uh, and then they'll be more likely to read it. If they're reading it blind, then maybe that's true. I mean, have you ever been to one of these slush fests? Uh, yeah, yeah, years ago, yeah. And in one, the first page, and the people judge it based on the first page, and, you know... No, people aren't. People don't buy books based on looking at the first page. They 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 judge a book by reading the blurb on the back. Mm-hmm. That's more important. Absolutely. Get- yeah, and, and again, if, if you're an agent or a publisher or something like that, in all likelihood, uh, you know, like you want, you know, you want to know, you know, like what 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 the book is about. What's the story? Uh, what 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 are maybe maybe what some of the themes are, and even then, as you're learning what the book is about, as you say, some of it might come down to uh, how, how are they feeling that day? Did they have a good breakfast? Did they have a fight with their husband or their wife? Did they uh, did they get a ticket on the way to the office? Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, like yeah, there, there, there's so many things that could affect how they are ultimately able to receive your idea. And and and. 
Also, you know, how many pitches have they heard just like yours? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, I, my first book, my first horror novel is a serial killer book, and I couldn't get anyone to look at it mm-hmm. because the place had been, in, you know, had been in completely uh, overblown, saturated with serial killer books. Mm-hmm. And I thought mine was different, and it is technically different, but it's still a serial killer book. And how many times do you want to read about that? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know... I mean, I learned a lot going through it. I didn't make a lot of money with that first book, but uh, right. I learned a lot. I learned enough. I learned from it in order to um, make a better pitch, and get to a better publisher this time, mm-hmm. and, and and move on from there. So yeah, um, the, a lot of times, don't forget. I was just involved in this uh, Twitter thing too. Uh, 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 Pit Dark, uh, the pitch, one of the Twitter pitches last night. Okay. No, it was two nights ago. Sorry. You know, when you go online there and you put, um, sorry, you go online and uh, you go on the Twitter and you pitch your thing and you put, you know, the hashtag next to it and if anyone like, if any of the agents like it, that's an, a, a thing to throw, to put to put in your query. That's so it's cool. A, this, wait, is actually, this is actually new to me. I, it sounds familiar, but I'm not totally familiar with it. So this, this sounds cool, but yeah, go on. So it's a sort of a pre-query query. Mm-hmm. So you put in the basic idea, you put in like, and you put in like, it's like, you know, Salem's Lot plus uh, The Road or Salem's Lot plus <laughs> Inferno or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, you know, just, and then you, you give, you give, uh, you know, it can only be 240 characters and you put in the hashtag next to it, you know, uh, for, for the thing. This one was Pit Dark, which Pit means pitch and Dark means for dark material like horror. Got it. And you put in the hashtag for, you know, what, uh, age group it's going to be you know young adult or adult or new adult which is one that i just learned <laughs> i have not heard about that i'm gonna to have to look it into that, that is, later new adult it's 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 between it's for people in college between 20 and 24 okay all right it's a very limited demographic in my opinion sure but and then you give your pitch and then anyone who likes it um that's a go ahead to go ahead and that's a go ahead to uh, send them the um, the query rather than just blind queries so yeah that I you know and the, and you know that can save you a lot of time yeah I, I like that a lot because one of one of the challenges with with querying agents at all is just do you know as as much due diligence as you can do? It's still hard to know for certain. Is this agent going to be interested in this idea? And right. uh, and so so this 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 is a, I like this idea of just you know the the, the pre query query of like here's just in two hundred forty characters. Here's an idea. Does this sound good to you? Great. Let me send you a query letter. Right. Um. It can be difficult. <laughs> but, you know, I, again, again, you know, finding an agent is very difficult, um, especially when, you know, it, it, depending on your market. But everyone nowadays, it seems like all these agents, they're all looking for young adult, mm-hmm. especially in the horror set, the division. They all want young adult horror because mm-hmm. that's big. You know, then, you know, to me, young adult horror isn't real horror. It's like they want horror without the horror elements. Oh. They want paranormal fiction, like the the Sucky Stackhouse books, right? Okay. That's not horror, but it has vampire, it has horror genre elements in it. Mm-hmm. It has vampires and werewolves and all that sort of, that's what they're looking for. They don't want, <laughs> they don't want, you know, the next Shining or anything like that. <laughs> Which is why most horror nowadays being presented, you know, unless you're Stephen King, is is, is done through indie markets. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, up to this point, I've I've published, uh, I've published five books. Uh, my first book was a horror novel. My next three were were part of a, a vampire trilogy. Um, my fifth book was a short story collection, and that's a story. There's uh, multi-genre stories, but uh, all of them I published uh, independently, including including you know, including my first book, which, uh, as you say, it's a horror novel. And I, you know, I I spent um, at this point I, I barely remember. I spent at least a year, I would say, uh, sending out uh, query letters and and you know, looking for for agents or small publishers or, or anybody. Uh, and during all of my querying, I, I mean, I was probably sending out, you know, probably like, you know, four or five 
queries a week, you know, snail mail, because that, that was also at a time where, you know, it, it was possible to email agents, but a lot of uh, a lot of the agents were using e- uh, snail mail as a as sort of a filter of to, to see how serious you were. So don't send me a, a, an email and, 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 you know, any jerk can do that. You know, you know, type up a letter, put it in an envelope, get a stamp, go to the post office and then and then let me reject you. Right. And so so during during that whole time, I think I got um, uh, I, I only ever got two responses where they ultimately asked to read the full novel. And, and even when they asked to read the full novel, you know, the, you know, both both ended up with rejections, but both rejections came with, you know, we you know we like this. This is actually pretty good, but, uh, we, I, I don't, I don't think I can sell this. So, you know, best of luck to you. Yeah. That's the worst one, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it really wow, is. What a great book. No one's going to buy it. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so, so I totally get that. So up to this point, I've been, you know, I, I've, I, uh, you know, it, uh, exclusively, uh, publishing independently, uh, and I'm fine with it. I, I enjoy it. I've learned a lot about it. It's been good in that I've learned a lot just about the logistics and the mechanics of it. All right. What's that? A lot of stumbling mistakes. I've oh, made. my God. Oh, God. Yeah. In fact, one, one of the first uh, big <laughs> I'll say it's my favorite just because it's the one that I that I'm able to laugh at now. But so so uh, when I published my first book, um I didn't know what a wholesale discount was, and there was there's so many things I don't I didn't know a lot about anything. Um, what I understand now is is a wholesale discount is the discount that you give. Uh, in this case, you would give a discount to Amazon. So 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 if my book sells for for ten dollars, um, uh, you know it, it, in the in the open market, I'm going to sell it to Amazon at a discount, so they can buy it for me at a discount, and then that's how they make their profit. So maybe I sell my book to Amazon for eight dollars. But then they sell at retail for ten dollars, and then you know everybody can you know uh, make their profit that way. I didn't know what a wholesale discount was, so whatever. So I think my thought was like, oh well, let me let me make it a big discount. That way the retailers will be more happy to to sell my book. So so whatever the discount was, it was it was. First of all, I didn't do the math. I did no research. I just like made up a number that sounded like a like a nice number to make the retailers happy. And it turned out with my first several book sales my discount was so good that I was losing money on my books that every time I sold a book, uh, I owed money to my, uh, to, to, to my printer and, and distributor because I w- there wasn't enough money coming back in. Luckily, uh, I didn't sell enough books to where um, <laughs> it handicapped me in terms of, of royalties, but, but, uh, but that was a lesson that I had to learn early on because there's, there's no, it, there was really, there, there was really no other way to learn how to do it except for how to do it. So, so up to this point, um, I, I, I enjoy it. I like doing it. I, I feel uh, pretty good about, you know, that, that I can do the process whenever I have a new book. Um, but I'm also curious to like with, with the, I'm working on a book right now. I'm about, uh, I'm about halfway through it and I've been giving a lot of thought to, um, just testing the waters again, to seeing what it's like to at least try to, to find an agent or try to get a book published, uh, with a with a traditional publisher, um, just you know, just to see, and and I and I can do it with the comfort of knowing that, at worst, I know how to publish a book. So if if this is another one that just hits the wall and there's no interest and nobody wants it, I can you know I, I at least at this point have the 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 skill and and the, and the background to publish it myself. Where right. where with that first book, there was there was there was a lot more anxiety of. If if nobody wants this, then then, then what happens? Is it that the book so, just disappears like, like a ghost or something? It's your first book, you know. They always say this: you got to build up your readership, right? Yeah, you got to build up your 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 lists and all this. But if you don't, and so some woman I was talking with, and she was like arguing, you have to do that before you put the book out. I said, even your first book, and she goes, yes, ideally. But I mean, if no one knows, yeah, do you, do you don't have a product to put out. Why would anyone sign up? Uh, you know, the uh, for more. Absolutely, it, it's like it's it, you know, and that's where to put out like two or three books independently, then where you can start building up your 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 readers list. Yeah, like five five uh, five or ten years ago, I, I don't see it as much now, but like say somewhere you know somewhere in the area of like you know ten years ago, uh, I, I I was seeing a lot of um, celebrities writing novels, and 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 you know cynically, I'll, I'll put writing in quotes because I'm 
certain, you know, there was a lot of ghostwriting involved. But oh, you know, yeah. just a lot of, you know, like actors, uh, talk show hosts, just people who already had uh, a brand behind their name. And if you're a publisher, I don't begrudge the publisher because business-wise I can make sense of it. Yeah. Of like, okay, you know, they've that person's got a name. One of those reality stars that put out something inane. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and they've got you know, and 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 I was you know, and I'd look into it, and I was like, these aren't, they're not writing autobiographies, they're writing novels. This is fascinating, and and you know, and, and, and maybe they wrote it, or maybe you know, maybe that go again. I'm sure there, there was a lot of ghost writing involved. Um, I, I I don't see it as much now. I, I imagine it still happens. I don't see as much of that now, but but I think it lends itself lends itself to that idea of. You know what kind of following do you have, and, and, and even that actually uh, gets a little bit back to what we were talking about earlier. To you know, do you have a good first sentence? Do you have a strong first paragraph? Of you know, do you have a strong query? Do you have a strong pitch? To where it's like, you know what, yeah, your book might be mediocre, but do you have a lot of people that are willing to buy it? Then I'll publish that book. Right. And that's not that's not easy to get, especially nowadays. Yeah, yeah. It's like, a, how do you, how do you? How, how how do you translate like like maybe because you know like now there's there's there we're in the age of uh social media celebrities people who you know who are who have just wild followings on instagram or youtube or twitter or whatever it's half of those are fake yeah i think that's i think i think that's totally fair too you know, somebody never heard of all of a sudden pops up with five million views and he's like yeah you, you know i mean there's there's a certain amount of chicanery around that yeah, no, yeah, there absolutely is. I, I've, I've done a little sniffing around in terms of, you know, partly just, just researching. Okay, like as an author and a publisher, uh, what are, what are some ways to build up my own social media presence just, just to help myself? And in doing some of my own research, I've seen uh, several, several businesses whose, whose whole business model is getting you likes, getting you followers, getting you traction. So it's not. Uh, a lot of it is not organic. It is not homegrown. A lot of it is, just, and and part of part of it is what they'll do is you know you'll 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 give this company access to your social media. So here's my username. Here's my password. They now have access to it, and they they just create you know computer programs that have algorithms that basically um, they 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 replicate they they replicate you being online twenty four hours a day. So that you're you're constantly liking, commenting, engaging with with uh, with the internet, twenty four hours a day. Except it's not new; it's a computer, and and, and the algorithm is set to you know, uh, who's going to be the people that are most interested in you? Who's who's the most ideal audience? Engaging with those people, and it's replicating something that no human being could reasonably do. And then ultimately, you know, and, and then of course beyond that, certainly there are, there's there's going to be just bots and fake profiles that. That are that you know that that'll end up uh, as your as your followers and 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 a lot of it really is artificial and and, and not organic and not not entirely useful at at, at the end of the day. But I guess, I guess if I don't know I guess if uh, if it, if it gets you if it gets somebody a, a book deal then 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 I don't know maybe it was worth it. Hell if I know. Yeah, I know. Um. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You see, I, and also the other thing is, I can't tell anymore. I I, I don't know if the if, if 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 people are reading more or less now. Oh man, me neither. Not a clue. Because I mean, I read plenty of kids who read, but you know, then uh, other adults they don't read, and I can't tell. And I and I I might be wrong, but I think people are shifting away from Kindle a lot, and going back to traditionally published books. That that'd be interesting. Like I know I've like I, I have a Kindle, I've read books on Kindle, but um, I've never I, I've never and it's not that I'm fighting it. I just I just can't. Whatever it is, whatever it is, whether it's just 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 the the, the memory or just the just the tactile feeling of having a book, um, it's it's just not the same experience for me. Like like I'm I'm reading a book right now. Like it's the first, well it's it, it's the first uh just hardcover book that I've picked up in a at least probably in, in the last few months and and uh and and i find that i'm enjoying the experience 
a lot more. And in, in the last few days, I've been just asking myself, is am I enjoying it because it's a good book or am I enjoying it more because it's, it, it's, a, it's a hardcover book and I can turn the pages and I can put my bookmark in there? When it's done, uh, I, I can walk by it in my house and see it there. And, and you know, there's there's all these things connected to it. Where I mean, I, I've read again. I've read a few books on on my Kindle, and and I've enjoyed them. But certainly, it's not the same experience for me. And that that would that would be interesting if if there's somehow just a cycling back around from uh, the you know digital. Although although I, I'm getting myself off tra- off track, but I, I think there is a huge huge upward trend in and audiobooks. I hear a lot from folks who yeah. know, they primarily listen to, to audiobooks. And I've heard people from people who um, have a great interest in my books based on meeting me or reading a synopsis or reading an interview, reading a review. They have a great interest in, in reading my book and they want to know when's the audiobook coming out so they can read it on audio on, on audiobook. Because I, I, I don't have any audiobooks at this point. So, well, I, put, I put out an audiobook and man, after it's done, it takes forever to get done. Sure. You got to get the person to do it. And then, you know, who has the equipment, you got to split a certain percentage with them. And then Amazon, I've had a book that's uh, ready to go. I've submitted it to Amazon and it's taken them close to a month and a half hmm. to, um, to admit it. And this is not a long book. This is a, uh, this was a 92 page novella. Okay. So, I mean,. <laughs> and it's taken that long. Yeah, it's taken that long for it to come up. Um, yeah, audio book. I want to do more audio books, but I myself cannot. I don't. I don't want to use my own voice, so I got to find someone else out. But uh, I, I have put out one before. This was a, my first test book. It's really more of a pamphlet uh-huh. that I did when I was fiddling around with putting stuff up on Amazon, mm-hmm. and I turned it into an audio book. And I made you make a lot more money off of that than I did on the, anything else. <laughs> Sometimes it goes that way, where yeah. you know, the the thing that just felt like an almost throwaway idea is a thing that gets the most traction. But you got to go through that being meticulous um, with the other person. Yeah, with their thing because you got to go through because uh, say at this particular mark you flubbed, can you redo this part? And then they got to go back. It takes it takes a lot of time. To get it just right. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I can absolutely imagine. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, Rex. Uh, this has been a great pleasure chatting with you. Um, uh, be- before we wrap up, though, uh, for for folks who are interested in learning more about you or learning more about your upcoming book, What Hell May Come, uh, what's the best way that folks can learn about you and if they want to get in touch with you? All right. Well, that is uh, uh, rexhurst.com. That that's the best way. It's got all my information there, all my contact information. <laughs> that's easy enough. Rexhurst.com. Rexhurst.com. Yeah, and I put up a lot of articles too about stuff I'm reading, and I put up reviews of books that I've read to so other people's stuff. That's fantastic. All right, and and, and again for folks listening, Rexhurst.com. That's R E X. H-U-R-S-T dot com. Rexhurst dot com. Uh, you can learn about Rex there. You can also listen to episodes uh, of his radio show right on SC. So again, Rex, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure and, and I very much appreciate you taking the time. It's been a pleasure for me too. Great. And, uh, and for, for those of you listening, uh, I appreciate you guys very, very much. And until next time, I will see you on the other side. And that that will do it, my friend. All right, great. It's nice meeting you.